Hello everyone and welcome to the EV Undisturbed podcast. My name is Nejda Tsaturgyan and I'm the editor of the creative tech section here at EVN Report. My guest today was Mikhail Matosyan, a renewable energy specialist working at TetraTech. We spoke about Armenia's energy sector and the role of renewables play in it currently and what potential there is to grow the percentage of renewables. We also spoke about trends in the clean tech industry globally and Mikhail shared with us what can be expected in the coming years. Thank you for listening. Mikhail, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Nizda. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Great to have you. Mikhail, let's start with a little bit of your background. How'd you get into the energy space, clean tech, and how'd you make your way to Armenia? Sure. I've always been interested in the environment, climate change, and specifically clean energy as a kid growing up in the United States, in Los Angeles specifically. And as I got older, I realized that clean energy really is one of the solutions that we have to fight climate change. And just from a scientific and societal standpoint, that really interested me. When I was, uh, one of my first times in Armenia, I did, I was able to do an internship here. That was in 2010. So I was about 14 years old when I was in high school. It was a really simple internship, but my task was to do research on a topic and I picked renewable energy in Armenia. That was when I first started to learn about the potential for renewables like solar, wind, um, hydropower in Armenia and learn about the energy industry in Armenia and realize like what kind of a role that renewables can play in Armenia's present and future. And from then on, I, I knew that I somehow had to work in that sector in Armenia. So went to school in the US, um, did undergraduate, graduate education there, a few internships and jobs along the way. And then I joined the company that I'm with now, TetraTech, which is a engineering consulting company. And we're a contractor for organizations like the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, and other sort of donor organizations. And through that, um, I joined our Armenia branch last year. I moved here about seven months ago, and we're working on a five-year uh, clean energy project. Fantastic. When you say branch here, is that USAID or is Tetratex itself have, does itself have a presence here? Right. That's Tetratex branch in Armenia. We've been here for... Um, almost at least 20 years, I think, working on different projects. Most of the workforce is is Armenian, from Armenia. Really great energy, like deep sector uh, technical specialists from here. And we we implement these projects for USAID or for World Bank or these other donor organizations. Got it. So I want to speak with you about two things primarily today. One, about clean tech and Armenia's energy sector in general, the work that you guys are doing in that space. Then I want to speak with you about clean tech, renewables, and the energy sector more generally and some of the trends we're seeing. Let's start with Armenia, and then I think that'll give us an avenue to dive into some of these topics. Give us an overview of clean tech in Armenia right now, renewables in Armenia right now. What's being done, what's available, and what are some of the work that you guys are doing? I think maybe we can start with just the energy sector in general in Armenia. And then well, of which renewables is an important component, but it's important to note like what else is, is going on in the sector because that kind of sheds light on what motivates um, the renewable energy kind of subsector. So currently in Armenia, there's a mix of different energy resources. It's split between thermal power plants, which are sort of mostly natural gas. That's about almost 40% of the, the energy mix. There's the Medzalmod nuclear power plant. That's about 30%, give or take, of the mix. There's also large hydropower plants. Again, 27, 28% of the mix. And then there are renewables, which you could consider as smaller hydropower plants, wind, and solar. And when we say clean energy or renewables, of course, we're talking about you know those sources that you know don't emit any or emit very much less greenhouse gas emissions compared to these traditional fossil fuel sources like gas, uh, coal, petroleum, oils, things like that. So does that mean all renewables are clean tech, but there are clean tech sources that are not renewable? There could be. So a lot. it depends on who you ask, but a lot of people, many people in the sector don't consider nuclear renewable, right? Because it's based on uranium fuel. There's only a finite amount of that. But when you compare it to fossil fuels like oil, petroleum, it doesn't have that big of an environmental impact relatively. It is relatively clean. And personally, I think it should be part of sort of our arsenal or our, one of our tools that we're using to fight climate change mm-hmm. and to power our society. So we can consider that clean, whereas renewables are, you know, things that, you know, literally depend on renewable sources. The, like the solar sun, and the wind. wind. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. 
the renewables right now in Armenia, according to our estimates, our team's estimates, at least in the beginning of uh, the year, were about 4%, wow. um, quite small. Wind is extremely small. There's only a few turbines, and there are many issues associated with that, mostly costs and accessibility to build the turbines. Solar is, I can say, really expanding. I think that's one of the most exciting parts of the energy sector in Armenia. We are seeing every week or every month, we're hearing about new projects you know, being licensed or being planned or being developed or installed. And the exciting thing is it's leveraging the sort of indigenous you know, domestic resource of the sun that Armenia has. And, and if you compare Armenia to other countries, let's say the average European country, the solar radiation here is quite strong on average when you're looking per square meter squared compared to those other European countries. So there is a lot of potential for solar. And I think people are starting to realize that and take advantage of it. I mentioned those numbers about the thermal power plants, the nuclear, the large hydro. The energy security situation in Armenia you know, has a lot of room for improvement, you could say. There's high dependency on other countries for those resources, for the gas, for the uranium fuel. So expanding renewables like solar, wind, hydropower, um, is a way to sort of increase, promote energy security, independence, you know, more domestic decision-making in Armenia. Right. So Armenia's renewables currently are hydro, wind, and solar. Mm-hmm. And can you give us an idea of what the breakdown is between those three? I think wind is is probably less than 1%. There's only a few turbines. Um, One of that four? Yes. Or, okay. Yeah. So a quarter uh, of all renewables? Less than 1% of the total. Oh, the total yeah, renewables. Yeah. Oh, okay. Solar is probably the rest of that. The hydropower that we were talking about before, that includes large and small. But the 4% renewables is wind and solar. Wind is extremely small, minuscule. Solar is most of it. So solar is most of renewables right. in, in yeah. Armenia? Yeah. Okay. What is the initiative that you guys are currently implementing? What are you guys doing to increase that number? The name of the project is uh, the USAID Energy Secure Armenia Activity. And the overall goal for for the five years that this project is in place is to promote energy security in Armenia. Um, And that's through three main sort of uh, work streams. One is to work with the government of Armenia on legal regulatory reform. So that's to help specifically, I mean, to kind of review the laws, policies that govern the energy sector and try to modernize them and specifically bring them in alignment with that of the European Union. Mm -hmm. And through that, those modernizations can enable more solar, more wind, whether it be incentives or, you know, related to tariffs um, or ease of integrating renewables into the grid. Um, it's where our team is looking at those laws and policies that govern those sort of mechanisms. Second objective is renewable energy itself. So we're doing a lot of different things. We're working on a study right now that looks at data from the grid and from the energy system right now to sort of forecast what can the system take in terms of future renewables? Hmm. So it's a grid, uh, we're calling it a grid integration and flexibility study because renewables, as we know, are, are intermittent, right? They're, the sun doesn't shine all day long. Right. The wind doesn't blow all day long. So those variances don't always have good effects on the grid, let's say. So we're trying to take into account that and into account what the energy system of the future could look like and, and present a study to the government to say, you know, th- this is technically feasibly what could be integrated into the grid when it comes to renewables. So there are limitations. There are definitely limitations, and that depends on what the system today looks like. You know, the network, the transmission distribution network that's delivering electricity from here to there, how variable those renewables are. Do you have any kind of algorithms, mechanisms that can prevent you from feeling the impacts of that? Because, you know, let's say if, if it's too variable, that could hurt some of the, the actual, it could physically hurt the infrastructure. Hmm. Um, or if it's you know extremely variable, maybe it could even cause a blackout here or there. So looking for those kinds of impacts in this study. There are a few other things we're doing under that, under that objective. We are working with the government to try to you know, provide capacity to them on um, how to bring in new projects into the pipeline. So, you know, talking to investors, um, once projects have been originated, new solar and wind projects, for example, you know, making sure there there's financial due diligence happening on them, making sure they, they progress throughout the pipeline to actual completion, because it, it takes a few years, of course, to install a solar system or, or a wind turbine. Like, a, like the large-scale infrastructure? Right, right? yeah. Right. It could take, you know, three to five years, let's say, depending on how big it is. Another kind of exciting thing that we're doing is we're working with the city of Gyumri to pilot a integrated renewable energy energy efficiency project. 
So we're doing a whole variety of things with them and, and we're just starting it. We just um, sort of signed a partnership agreement with them, an MOU a few weeks ago. And essentially what we're gonna do is, since they have really impressive goals to expand renewables like solar and um, electrify their gas heating system and to implement energy efficiency, like more energy efficient lights and, and transportation, we're essentially giving them technical assistance, making sure they use you know good products for, for the systems that they're looking to procure, trying to help them plan where the solar should go, how feasible it is, give them trainings on how to operate the solar systems, giving trainings to the community on you know how to manage it, um, how to communicate it to the public, of you know, to the citizens of Gimri. So that'll be a multi-year activity that we just started last month. So we're excited for that. And then I'll just mention the third major objective under the project is energy efficiency. Energy efficiency being, you know, getting the same outputs using less energy, mm-hmm. right? So that could be efficient lighting, transportation, if it's electric vehicles, uh, maybe appliances, maybe it's electrifying your your gas heater to not use natural gas, but a, an electric heater or solar water heater, things like that. So that's more like consumer behavior. Exactly. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Awareness is a big part of that, you know, raising awareness about like, what are the what are the benefits of reducing your energy use right. of being more conscious of your electricity use because of course that can that can reduce your um, your bill. Right. So under that orientation, we're we're assisting the government in implementing their national energy efficiency renewable energy plan mm-hmm. that has a lot of different mechanisms. One is raising awareness in schools and public schools about energy efficiency, trying to integrate energy efficiency into the actual educational curriculum of schools. Another one is working with the government to collect, to create a a systemized way of collecting energy use data from schools, communities, other public buildings across Armenia. So it goes to the government and they can use it for more informed decision-making. And we're also going to launch a communications campaign overall throughout Armenia with different partners with the government to try to promote um, use of renewables and energy efficiency. Awesome. One question that came to my mind as you were speaking about the about Gyumri's ambitions for clean tech initiatives was how the planning for the stuff works in Armenia. Is it done at the federal level? Is it the government of Armenia that sets these plans and goals or... Do the regions and municipalities have control over dictating how they want their the city's energy to be managed? Yeah, so it's been interesting to learn about that that whole sort of system, the differences between the modest governments, the, the region and governments, the cities and the, the national government. They definitely work together, but they also have their own roles and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we start from the top, the national government, you know, specifically our counterpart is the Ministry of Territorial Administration and Infrastructure, which includes energy covers energy and and all of their infrastructure you know they're setting the high level policy of what are our targets for renewables going to be in the future how much funding we'll make available through state subvention programs or grants to communities to regions and they'll also work with you know international partners like us or these donor organizations like usaid then the marses have their own you know sort of uh, responsibilities to assist the cities maybe the, in, in their mars maybe they'll make some funding available maybe they'll have a plan for the mars to some energy or climate goals and then the city itself can as at least from gimri's perspective they are making decisions about you know where they want to source their energy they're they're deciding okay we have space here in this field or on these rooftops for new solar panel systems we want to pursue that We'll go, we'll, we'll work with the Mars Bedaran or maybe with the, the ministry to get the state subvention and install that. And they'll run the procurement process. Right. It's up to them. Same with maybe their their fleet. Let's say Gyumri wanted to pursue electric buses. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably will be the ones making a, a decision about that. So I, I think from, at least from what I've seen, they do have some level of autonomy. It's distributed sort of the yeah. responsibility. Yeah. yeah. You said, for example, if Gyumri wants, if they have some land where they could install like a small solar farm, if I'm using the wrong term, that's all good. uh, Correct me. But one thing that I think a lot of people might not know how it works is oftentimes people associate solar power with installing solar panels on their own rooftop and maybe using that for the energy in their house uh, or in their offices and stuff. What does it mean when like a government or a large institution installs a solar farm and like puts panels in a, a field when they're collecting that energy what happens with that? Is that just distributed to the general grid and then used to for the energy of the city? Or is that more specific towards like these buildings, these houses? In general, like how does individual sort of consumer-based solar 
work versus these more like large scale projects like the the farms and the there's a lot of different systems or structures available you know globally in sort of more rural areas or maybe if, if there's a country with an area that doesn't have a, a strong grid maybe they'll install an off-grid system okay. and that's you know that's not connected to the centralized grid let's say they're living in a house or a community they'll only have solar on those rooftops or in that area and it'll just be connected to those houses so it's a very sort of decentralized system it's just just very isolated. Those kinds of systems are, are really used a lot in sub-Saharan Africa, South Southeast Asia, where maybe the grid hasn't reached there yet. Hmm. In Armenia, there's essentially a 100% electrification rate or 99.9% electrification, as in the grid, the central grid reaches all of the country, virtually all right. villages, cities, areas of the country. So there isn't as much of a need for those off-grid solutions. A lot of the power is coming from the centralized grid. So you'll have you know, the Yerevan thermal power plant, which is in Yerevan, the Medzamon nuclear power plant, they're injecting electricity, they're producing electricity and they're injecting it into the grid. And the grid operator, the system operator, I should say here, is making decisions every day about how it should be distributed, you know, how to control the system, how to, they're monitoring it, right. That's the classic centralized model. And what we're seeing globally in sort of clean energy trends is this model of decentralization that's related to a lot of different things. I mean, in the centralized system that traditionally has relied on a lot of fossil fuels or nuclear in the decentralized system, let's say for Gumri's case, you know, they have solar resource potential. They have potential to install solar. They can install solar in say a field or an area or even on their rooftops and have it connected to those buildings there. Hmm. And then the excess power, they're, they're, so there is uh, legislation in Armenia that allows this, the excess power that they don't use could be injected into the grid and the system operator can use that somewhere else, let's say. Okay. And Gumri can be compensated for that. So there's like an inventory of energy mm -hmm. to put it into more, maybe slightly more layman's terms. Mm -hmm. And that inventory gets managed and it comes in from different sources and these large solar farms can be just one of those sources that it comes from pretty much exactly yeah and so the term for that is net metering but okay. essentially it's that it's taking an inventory you know right. taking the net seeing how much the customer used and whatever there's excess that can be sold essentially back to the grid and, and they can capture some of their investment back or get some revenue right um mm -hmm. i would mention that my colleagues working on these usaid projects before i got here they actually helped the government they worked really closely with the government to enact new legislation that actually allows for virtual net metering. So to put it simply, what can happen is, let's say I live in an apartment in Yerevan, and I also own property outside Yerevan in Godak Mars, and I have space there for a solar array. Theoretically, and this is happening now, um, and it's one of the reasons why solar is expanding, I think, in, in Armenia. I could install a solar array in that field in Godaik, be registered with the electric networks of Armenia, the distributor, as the person involved in both of those areas and have the power generated in Godaik actually offset my bill in Yerevan. Hmm. That Those are some of the things that we're exploring with Gumri to see where they could install the solar, where it could be used. And our initial analysis is showing that they will be able to, if they go ahead with their plans to install um, some of these solar systems, they can offset um, a lot of the public building load or lighting. And and our, our end goal really is to help, number one, help Gimri, you know, get used to and, and, and carry out these activities so they can, you know, do it themselves right. and, and um, be empowered to you know, pursue renewable energy, but also second, of course, to hopefully reach the the consumer, like the citizens of Gumri, because if the, the community is, the, if the public entity, the city is able to save money on these energy costs, maybe they can use it for other things like social services right. or mm. um, you know other things that can benefit the community. So really when it, what it eventually boils down to is hopefully reducing costs of energy for consumers. That's one of the mm -hmm. big sort of underlying things behind our, our project. Right. So if I understand correctly, that program incentivizes people to make investments in solar in Armenia and sell that to or even just provide it to the grid and mm -hmm. then that offsets their buildings costs they're private. So is that uh, targeted towards like companies, corporations or individuals as well? I'm just curious, like what type of investment is it? Like how substantial is that? Technically, I think so most segments of the population can do it. There are independent citizens that are doing that in, mm -hmm. in that sort of situation that I mentioned, that scenario of a summer house 
they've installed the solar and it's and it's covering their electricity right. in Yerevan. But of course, also other com- large companies are doing that as well. There are some companies that are trying to install right now very large solar systems um, that might cost you know in the millions, tens of millions, and sell that power to the grid or to other uh, buyers directly. That's where it's coming from. And I'll, I'll just mention, I think there's there's one really big development um, that we're also supporting that I think is important to mention. The electricity market in Armenia for a long time since essentially independence has been, let's say, a closed system or it's, it's mm-hmm. a very one-to-one system. We're the consumers. We buy electricity from the utility, in this case, ENA, Electric Networks of Armenia, and they are generating the electricity. They're buying it from, let's say, the, the nuclear power plant, the thermal power plants, or maybe some solar arrays, and they're selling us the power. But in a lot of different uh, countries, in the US, Western Europe, and now in other countries as well, in Asia, um, there's been a liberalization of the market mm-hmm. introduced. And what that essentially means is it's no longer a requirement just to buy power from the utility. So through a lot of different reforms that our projects have helped with in support of the government, last year, the the market technically did open up. It has been liberalized in line with those other countries with what we call you know best practices for energy markets. So essentially what that means is now, usually it's the case of large companies um, or very large electricity consumers. They can go out and through a digital market platform, they can form a contract one-to-one with an energy producer, with Hmm. a solar array here or with a power plant over here, and maybe even get a price lower than what they would have gotten from the the utility and get that electricity. Mm -hmm. So the solar array over here, let's say, for example, is producing electricity. It'll still be injected into the grid. So the electric networks of Armenia is still transporting it and it gets to the consumer that way. But that consumer and this array, this solar array, have formed a bilateral contract in the marketplace. And they can do that, you know, as so there's an intraday market, as in you can you can buy power uh, within like a 24 hour span. If you forecast how much electricity you need, you can then use this digital platform that our team helped develop a few years ago. Um, and get power that way. That's a big sort of, we could say, digital change that has happened. Right. Um, it's all on a digitized system. The electricity market operator operates it. Um, they they're monitoring it, managing it, making sure making sure you know everything's everyone's following the rules. But that's been a huge reform um, that uh, USAID has been supporting. And we're we're in the over the course of this project, we're going to help uh, just monitor that and make sure the further liberalization uh, happens correctly. Right, fantastic. Um, in terms of uh, just going back for a second to the idea of who is installing solar systems, is the government itself also investing in selling public solar systems? Public meaning just owned by the government for the country's needs, or is it mostly left to private sector? And that involve including citizens, just average people. Let's say a private investor would come in and they would work. They would have an agreement with the government to sell their power at a set price for maybe 20, 10, 20 years. That was usually the way of doing it. But now with this liberalized electricity market, they can just directly enter the market right. and sell it to whichever entity is ready to buy their electricity. Mm-hmm. But I think it's noteworthy to mention that there is increasing interest by private sector companies, a lot, some domestic, a lot of them international. Um, to develop uh, solar systems here. Develop solar systems as in? To design them, install them, okay. like deploy them and connect them to the grid. Interesting. What's caused the recent like uptick in interest? I think it's knowledge of how useful or how good the solar resources, the sunlight right. is here. I think it's the government's sort of market signals or support for solar. I wanted to mention the government does have set targets for solar and wind. So by 2030, they have a plan of installing 1,000 megawatts of new solar PV and megawatt being a unit of generation capacity, which is quite large. That would essentially be about 15% of the total generation of Armenia coming from solar. Yeah, of electricity, right? Wow. Um, that's, so in, that's in the seven years, goal. that's the target. That's that's the target. And they also have another target for wind, which is uh, 500 megawatts of, of wind by 2040. Right now there's, let's say, less than 10 megawatts of wind. So those are quite ambitious targets. Uh, we're excited about them and we're trying to help the government reach them. I think they're definitely possible. <laughs> we Our team thinks they're possible, but 
that's another side of why there's an uptake in solar. Um, and I'll just mention there are there are these other sort of developments in the legal regulatory frameworks. I mentioned the virtual net metering about installing solar here and selling it or offsetting your costs somewhere else. The liberalized electricity market enables or incentivizes renewable energy developers because now I don't need to depend on the utility to sell the power. I can just, if you're a you know large electricity consumer and I have a solar array, I can form a contract with right. you directly through this digital marketplace. So the presence of this market is an incentive for me to install the system and, and inject the power into the grid. So there's all these different things that I think are causing the mm -hmm. uptake in solar. Where would the 15% number, if we were to reach it by 2030, what is that in comparison to more developed countries? For instance, what percentage of, I don't know, Western European countries is energy is solar or the US or Canada? It's a good question. Like in the US, it's, it's definitely less than I'd say 20%, 15-20%. The US has ambitious goals as well to get to, you know, reduce their carbon emissions by a lot. And solar is a big part of that. Probably similar for Europe as well. In a lot of those countries, they're using coal or, or natural gas. We don't really use coal. Mostly just natural gas is the major fossil fuel. Um, but I do think it's a quite ambitious goal for, mm -hmm. a, for a country of this size. I think 15% coming from solar is quite ambitious, but it is, it is doable. We're trying to help the government to plan for it, figure out you know, where can investment go or attract investors to install those those mm -hmm. systems to meet that target? For countries that, again, have more mature implementation of solar into their uh, energy grids, who have also liberalized their markets, as you as you put it, what does that do to energy costs in the country? In a lot of cases, it, it can decrease it, especially if they're large electricity consumers, like a large company, maybe they're like a manufacturer or a um, some other heavy industry. I think in the U.S., I've seen situations where it might not necessarily be um, cheaper, but you're able to get you know green power or lower carbon intensity power. And maybe me as a company or me as a consumer, I, I want that. I prefer that over right. You um, a, a lower price, right? right. But in, in a lot of cases, and, and what we're already seeing from the contracts being formed is it, is it is definitely possible that it can be cheaper in the marketplace because it's a more competitive price. Right. These buyers and sellers are trying to get each other's business. Um, now there's traders working in between them. So I, a company could, could approach a trader and ask, can you get a contract for me? They're kind of getting used to that. They're, they're new entrants into the market, but they're getting used to trying to find lower price contracts yeah. outside of the utility. So um, yes, in, in a lot of other cases, it can be cheaper, but not necessarily always. So like the cost of electricity, if we were to move towards like a more solar future, cost energy might become much more variable than it is now? Because most people these days are used to like a fixed stable cost. Not, not necessarily a variable. I just meant that it could be cheaper. I, I'm just looking at other examples of right, other countries. Right. From the marketplace perspective, it can be cheaper. And mm -hmm. and if you look at uh, also just costs of renewables in general, in terms of building a new power plant, solar or wind competes with and, and often is cheaper with com with building a new natural gas or coal power plant. Hmm. So in that, in that situation, yes, the cost can definitely be cheaper. Not necessarily variable as in changing up or down. Right. Like, okay. So the, for the consumer, they would still have a predictable... Like, a set price. Yeah, set price, definitely. Right. definitely. Okay. Yeah, it wouldn't be changing by the hour. By the year. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about clean tech a little bit more globally and generally. One of the things you mentioned is that you guys are doing awareness campaigns and uh, you have a communications plan for sort of spreading the word about sort of things that individuals can do to lessen their carbon footprint. I've always been curious about just how effective that is. Oftentimes, especially in the U.S. and in Canada, the conversation goes towards sort of individual responsibility versus corporate and institutional responsibility. And some people make the argument that while it's certainly good for individuals to be conscious of their behavior and how they ultimately to tackle this problem, there needs to be more sort of systemic and systemic uh, changes made that are targeted more towards corporations and really large consumers of energy. What's your take on that? How much am I hurting the planet by leaving my lights on? <laughs> you're you're not going to be the one that right. you know causes us to have global water warming rise, more yeah. than you know 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is right. the big sort of cap that we've set ourselves in terms mm -hmm. of the UN agreements and the Paris Agreement. I agree with you. Of course, the biggest things that we need to do is make sure that these large corporates, large consumers, 
decrease their carbon emissions. They're they're huge emitters, whether it be countries or or large corporations like the Amazons or the WalMarts of the world. Right. I've heard that argument before that it doesn't matter what we do; it just matters what the corporations do. Uh, I still think there's definitely a role for us to play. I mean, we have to put pressure ourselves on these companies or on our community governments or on right. our our country national governments, and and I think us having the mindset of conserving energy, being efficient, pursuing renewables contributes to that. But I also think that's the climate argument isn't the only argument for pursuing renewables. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Armenia's case, it's in my mind, energy security is, is number one. There's, there's really considerable domestic resources. We should be pursuing that. And number two, like we've been talking about as shown in other countries, if we do pursue solar and wind that can really help decrease electricity prices. I mean, so it's it's the financial standpoint of, a, of being a consumer or, or community. It's the energy security standpoint, and then also, of course, the climate standpoint. Personally, I mean, I of course I'll I'll try to conserve energy or I'll be interested in pursuing solar if I have an opportunity to. But um, I think we have to use all the different tools we have. Yeah. It's the individual action. It's the community. It's putting pressure on the Amazons and the Walmarts. It's putting pressure on the, the national governments, all yeah. of that, because without that, then we won't, we'll really be in a bad situation. And a good rebuttal to, to what I said is individual choice might not ruin the planet, but collectively all individuals make up a corporation much bigger than an Amazon, right? So our individual actions in that sense are, mm-hmm. are substantial. So For sure, you could say that too, yeah. And, and that's, of course, that's especially in the case in, in, in maybe, let's say, Western countries, large Western countries like the U.S. or Western Europe. And Armenia, although it you know isn't the largest electricity consumer by far or you know doesn't have the, the biggest electricity system, it still is impacted by climate change. Yeah. I mean, we're, we know about you know what's happening to Lake Sevan or just uh, to underground water tables, temperatures changing in Armenia. We can have an impact on that. I mean, it starts with us here in this country trying to reduce our environmental impacts, our footprint. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's another argument for it as well. I actually think a lot of people don't know what's happening to Lake Sevan. Speak a little bit about what the effects of climate change on, on Armenia are. So I'm not an expert on it, yeah. um, but from what I have heard about Lake Sevan, first of all, the water levels have been dropping. Part of that actually is actually um, tied to the fact that Lake Sevan does feed into a large hydropower cascade, as in a large hydropower plant that's giving us renewable electricity. So that's that's always a, a debate. There's in some parts of the lake there's large algal blooms, as in like algae, the the I think it's a microorganism um, that's kind of taking over the water, and and that's not healthy for the water and for the or I mean for the the fish and other inhabitants of the lake. Um, but I believe just with climate, from my understanding is with just increasing temperatures in general from climate change, there's, there's decreasing water levels. Um, and with just, if there's any stress on the energy system, and if we want to use more hydropower, then that will also decrease, um, water levels. Um, but a lot of research has been done on that. Um, USAID, UNDP, a lot of other different organizations are, are monitoring, uh, what's happening with climate change and in Armenia and Armenia does have its own um plan or we, they call it a nationally determined contribution which is their commitment to the un on what what they will do in different sectors energy water air transportation to reduce their their carbon footprint mm-hmm. um so there is a commitment from the government to to do that right and in the long term the impacts of climate change on armenia could be things like significant impact on armenia's agriculture abilities and, and things of that nature which compose a large part of armenia's economy right now right Exactly right. So, so groundwater, I think, is a huge issue. Like those water tables could dry up more, could be less available with rising temperatures, um, or just with changing environments. The the flora and fauna, you know, the animals, plants, birds, fish in in Armenia, which is actually quite um, high in terms of biodiversity for 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 a country of this size relative to the size, uh, it is quite high. <clears throat> those flora and fauna could be endangered or, or could even die off if the temperature or the environment changes too much. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a bunch of different impacts. Right. Yeah. What are some trends in the in clean tech that you're you're seeing and that you're excited about? What's there to be to be expected in the future? Globally? Yeah. Or globally. I think the number one thing for me is the advent of renewables and sort of all the businesses that can be generated 
due to that. So not just, you know, with, with solar being installed, with more solar being installed because we want cheaper power or we want more energy security, there's all these different other sides to it. Like there's the, there's the installation. There are companies that can offer, you know, forecast data analytics for forecasting how much power you can produce in the future. And that require that could require, you know, some machine learning algorithm, for example. Um, there are companies that are offering um, energy efficiency services to consumers, like helping them plan for which interventions like lighting or transportation or electric vehicle um, would be most effective for them. I think EVs, electric vehicles, are really exciting. And we all know about Tesla and those kinds of companies. And it seems like all the major car manufacturers are coming out with an electric vehicle. I think there's there's an understanding that you know gas is finite and um the more we electrify our our system our society the more hopefully possible it'll be to to have electric vehicles and there's again there's there's a host of different services and trends with that um there are companies that treat electric vehicles as batteries right so you could charge your car at night at your home or a parking lot or at your business and then when you don't need it um, you know, that power could be injected back into the grid when the grid needs it and it could be sent somewhere else, to put it simply. Um, so that's that's a really big trend. Um, I think, yeah, electric vehicles are big. I mean, solar in general, there's a lot of, I think, ways that robotics or AI can get involved in energy. Um, a lot of people are looking at blockchain for energy transactions. <laughs> Um, I don't know enough about that, okay. um, <laughs> but I've, I've, I've heard about it. There's a big trend uh, within energy efficiency known as demand response, where the grid operator can send signals. So if there's a period of stress on the grid, the grid operator can send signals to homes or public buildings or other electricity consumers to actually reduce their electricity so, that, so, the, so the grid remains stable. Um, and, and consumers can get different incentives mm -hmm. for doing that. And that requires, you know, smart meters or some kind of bi-directional communication between the grid and the house through that smart meter. Right. Um, so that, that's, that's another sort of big trend that's happening. What do you make of some of these products on the market now? Like, I forget what it's called, but Tesla had this product that is installed on like a, your house's wall and it links to the solar panels on the roof. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it replaces like the it powers the entire house, right? It could. Right? Um, right. Are you seeing like consumer adoption of products like that at a at like an increasing level, or is it still really like a luxury product? From what I've seen, and this is coming from California, which we could say is one the, of the leaders yeah, in the, the U.S. <laughs> on clean energy, right. they are becoming really popular. Um, when I went back home this uh, last for the last holidays, I was really surprised at the number of you know, electric vehicles I saw yeah. on the road. Sometimes it was, you know, every one in 10 or 20 cars. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's really sh it's, shocking. It's I really mean, like, shocking, yeah. I think back to like 2015, 2014, which is, I mean, now that I say it, it's like nine years ago, but <laughs> it doesn't feel like that long ago. But I mean, you when you would see a Tesla, it was kind of like seeing like a like a Ferrari or right, like some right. really like luxurious car. Now it's like every, like 20% of the cars on, not 20, but like some significant amount of the, yeah. the cars on the roads in like in Toronto where I'm from is are Teslas. Yeah, no, for sure. And so I, I think electric vehicles are def definitely being adopted, at least in California, at least in the US and these Western uh, countries. There's there's the attraction of, you know, lesser maintenance costs and not depending on gas. Um, but for that, for example, for that battery pack that powers the, the home, that also, I mean, those, those kinds of appliances are being adopted. And you can see in the marketplace there are different options. It's not just Tesla. There are other, other companies' competitors as well. There are startups coming up with their own right. um, solutions to that. And it's really exciting um, because more and more as a consumer, you have so many more choices now, at least again in the West, in, in Western countries, of what should my vehicle be? How do I want to power my home? Is it going to be through solar? Do I want to form a contract with with uh, some solar farm outside of my home? Maybe that's cheaper. Maybe I can install this battery. Um, batteries are really important, like we were talking about, because of how variable renewable energy is. So that can be used as a way to store it and make sure you're only using power from solar. Um, there, there are companies in the U.S. that offer 24-7 renewable energy. What does that um, mean? So the entire day you're getting power from a renewable energy source. Hmm. Um, 
again, the challenge is because solar winds are intermittent, that's that's difficult to do. Right. So there are ways around that though. You could use batteries, you can form contracts to get renewables from or a wind from maybe someplace else where the wind is blowing and the, the turbines are active, whereas maybe closer to you they weren't. And, and I think it's interesting because a lot of corporations like Google, Amazon, Microsoft have come out with pledges actually to get to net zero to get to net zero right. or 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 even further to to reach this 24 7 clean power which is pretty impressive um just curious though like the 24 7 mark um if at the end of the day what matters is how the grid is expending the resources it has right and I'm, i might be using the wrong terms here but does it really matter whether or not your specific building's energy is 24 7 renewable and like there's some amount of energy inventory right and that's going to be expended one way or another so long as the the amount of energy coming in that is renewable is the same from a climate perspective from like an emission perspective doesn't it remain the same or is there something i'm missing there so i think if i understood correctly let's take like amazon for example they want to pursue solar they want to reduce their carbon emissions by 50 percent. so they'll install solar on the rooftops they'll do this and that but at night they're still powering their buildings, their data centers, mm -hmm. what, what, whatever it may be, with things that aren't solar, you know, fossil fuels, right. gas, things like that. So the, the interest in 24-7 is making sure that through batteries or through some sort of innovative contract that they formed with other power producers far away from them, is that even at night, technically, they are getting power from renewable sources. Mm -hmm. So at least for them, in their commitments as you know for corporate social responsibility right. they are uh, right. they're totally powered by clean energy but of course that's still that still creates demand on the grid for this clean energy which is which is helps us reduce our carbon right. footprint um right. so from that perspective that's that's why they're pursuing that's I why see. one would pursue the the 24 7 power okay before we get to our last question i really want to talk to you about some of the recent there's been a lot of news recently about some of the advancements of fusion uh tell us what fusion is and and what's going on in that space now so nuclear fusion is a form of nuclear energy which is one of our oldest forms of energy you know producing electricity from enriched uranium and other rare earth metals or precious metals um, the usual method of producing electricity with using nuclear energy is fission, where that involves splitting apart an atom and, and using the energy generated from that to power steam turbines, and that generates electricity. That's been used for decades, right? And that's that's the technology that's being used in Metzamor nuclear power plant, which is not too far from Yerevan. And fusion is a, a different form of that, where you're actually, instead of splitting apart an atom, you're essentially combining or bringing together, colliding different atoms, and that creates a huge amount of force that can also produce electricity. Um, at the moment, there aren't any operating fusion nuclear reactors. Um, there is a lot of interest in it, of course, for, for decades. I, I feel like every year there's been an announcement saying that this is the year of fusion or this is the decade of fusion that's going to start right now. Um, because it is, uh, let's say, uh, it could be a, it's a new, could be cheaper, cleaner form of, of, of energy compared to fission. Significantly cheaper, right? right. Well, that's what they say. Right, but we, right. but we just haven't seen any. If the promise of it holds, right? Well, if the right. promise of it holds, and and maybe this is true with a lot of other forms of tech. Maybe you can speak to that more. But you know, there's all there's always an announcement every year about fusion or some new form of of uh, nuclear fission that's going to come out and and re bring bring about like a renaissance of nuclear around the world or at least in in western countries and i i'm personally a little let's say skeptical, skeptical of, of fusion at least just because there isn't a prototype um but it is of course it's exciting and i think it's important i think a lot of people write off nuclear because of the issues of environmental waste and um because the, the waste that's produced from the nuclear they used you know, uranium and those other precious metals, they're radioactive. And right. they have to be buried deep, deep underground. And uh, it can be very dangerous, of course, if, if exposed to people mm -hmm. or to... to There's leakage. Leakage, mm -hmm. right. And it could affect water or the animals, you know, fish in that area. That should be, you know, thought of. But um, I think there's a lot of, unfortunately, like negative... I, I, I think the... The bad cases are so scary that we really want to avoid it at yeah, all costs. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, the bad cases are very scary and they overshadow 
not only the good that nuclear can do, but there are really uh, across the world. I mean, the contamination issue is not as really major. I mean, those are a few incidents that happened. And of course, we're, we're very bad. But if you compare that to the amount of radiation that we are exposed to on a daily basis, there's there's stats that show, you know, how much a banana can emit in terms of radiation or how much you get from an x-ray or a, or a scan at the doctor airport on the average i mean that's that's a lot higher than nuclear and and there are very very strict regulations regimens in place about how to deal with that nuclear waste so i think i'm positive i'm, I'm optimistic about nuclear because i think we definitely need it and again in our like if we think of it as an arsenal or different tools for clean energy to fight climate change we definitely shouldn't write it off um it should just be thought about practically Mm-hmm. And hopefully we can get to a place where fusion is uh, uh, viable, but I don't think at the moment um, it is. Is there also a difference in, in the safety between current nuclear power plants and a fusion-based one? A lot, of, a big a draw of fusion for sure is that it's it's producing less radioactive waste. So it's I think safer. it's 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 supposed to be safer. But again, we just haven't seen it put in practice. Right. Um, but I will say there are exciting companies uh, in the U.S. that are coming out with innovative mechanisms for fission, which is the traditional mecha- uh, mechanism for okay. nuclear energy. But um, they're coming out with these smaller they call them small modular reactors smrs mm-hmm. so instead of these huge huge systems like mezzomod or like the ones that we have in the us or in europe um they're coming up with sort of they're they're reconfiguring the design of it to, to have it as a much smaller reactor and modular as in easier to deploy easier to set up um these are startups that are raising millions hundreds of millions of dollars getting a lot of interest from investors again still haven't installed a power plant yet but they do have plans to They've been signing agreements with different countries to provide them with nuclear energy, and they're they're in the process of being licensed and, and verified by the Nuclear uh, Regulatory Commission in the U.S. I think that's exciting, uh, the SMR technology, um, and that's definitely something that actually relates to our project because, as we know, you know, Metsamar is here, but uh, it won't it doesn't have an infinite lifetime. the The government right now is thinking about what can be done, what will it be replaced what will it be replaced by as a team we're recommending that the the government make an informed decision about what the future uh, power plant will be um and and one of those considerations can be small modular reactors it gives a lot more flexibility um for example if you have two smaller reactors and one of them needs to go down for maintenance the other one will still be operating in the case of metamor which is a huge much bigger system it's a lot harder to shut it down for maintenance and if it's shut down it's giving us a, almost a third of uh, more than a third of electricity in, in the in the system. That's that's a big impact. Um, so we're we're trying to help them figure out what that strategy will be for the future nuclear power plant. It's so interesting to hear about these like what traditionally was called like hard tech companies and some of the problems that they're that they're solving um, or working to solve. Most of the news and uh, sort of headlines that uh, dominate are these sort of consumer grade products that reach all of us. But some of these things that we're talking about, like in the the past few weeks, we've spoken about like space tech companies and we're talking about like these energy initiatives and some of the like much larger scale AI companies that are doing things that might not commercialize until, I don't know, 10 years from now or something. When you think about just all the work that's being done, it's it's so interesting how deep the overall tech and startup ecosystem is, is today. 15, 20 years ago, everything that we were, hearing about was about these sort of web platforms and mobile apps and these things that were turning into billion dollar companies which we all use and rely on today but it seems like there's been some significant shift towards science and the overall tech ecosystem and i think that's super exciting and something that will give us a hopefully a, a better future in the in the coming decades and decade yeah. for sure i yeah. i agree and i think i mean just to comment on that i think Armenia has a legacy of being, you know, a leader in science and engineering and um, having really well-trained and deeply technical energy specialists, like working on the nuclear power plant and the thermal power plants. And just from the number of new solar companies that I've seen um, and, and the, the, the potential that's come about from this electricity market liberalization, I think there's a lot to be excited about in the energy sector and and hopefully a lot of intersection with tech. Um and maybe just one other thing, I mean, that I think is noteworthy to mention, you know, with 
with this clean energy transition that Armenia is is on the path of, it will require more of those specialists, more of that workforce, right? right? And they'll need to be trained in modern ways to deal with the electricity market and its developments, to deal with solar, wind, the variability of that, and, and operate that grid of the future because it's not it doesn't look like what the grid used to be you know in the soviet or right. early independence years um so i think that's that's an important thing to 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 train that workforce and and i believe if i'm not mistaken that's maybe a part of that also relates to or is a similarity with the tech industry in armenia that that, that workforce there's demand for trained specialists for sure so to that end uh we're we're also trying to work on that as a team so our project is actually today a few hours ago we announced a new internship for um, students and alumni from the National Polytechnic University to work in our office for a few months. Um, for those students or alumni that have pursued energy studies or energy engineering, um, for them to sit in our office, you know, work on our projects, help us, and and get practical experience in, in all these sort of modern energy topics. And for them really to be able to leave the internship and, and think about and, and pursue jobs in Armenia to be able to operate the the grid, you know, let's say of the future. Right. Um, so that's something we're excited about. And I just want to mention that because I think that workforce piece is really key. Mm-hmm. I know it was the case in tech and I, I think it's the, the same case in, in energy, energy as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Mikhail, last question. Where do you hope to see renewables in Armenia in 10 years? In 10 years, I would like to see us surpass the goal of the target of a thousand megawatts of solar powering the grid in Armenia as in the 15% electricity generation. Um, I think it's ambitious, but just with the way that the projects are being licensed and bringing brought onto the grid, I think it's possible. Um, I'd like to see communities like Gumri, you know, take action and, and try to pursue different mechanisms for renewable energy to hopefully reduce the costs, electricity costs or cost of living for, for their citizens. And I, I'd like to see a, a trained workforce that, that can operate that, that grid in the future. I think leveraging the legacy of science and engineering in Armenia to have a trained workforce, right. I think, would be really great. Right. Thank you so much. I, we spoke for nearly an hour. I think I could go for another hour. I have <laughs> so many more questions left in my head. Uh, so we'll have to have you back on again someday. Great. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for all the work you guys are doing. And thanks for coming on today to teach us something about clean tech. Really appreciate it. Thank you. No, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Mikhail. Thanks.